Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. Just want to take a second and welcome you, especially if this is your first time with us. We're glad that you've joined as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we need you to know we've been walking through Matthew for a long time now. And actually, uh, because of where we're at in our study, you're getting Easter Sunday on the first Sunday in November. So happy Easter. <clears throat> glad that you're here. Glad that we can jump in. I'm going to pray one more time and ask for God's help. And then we'll get to work by the Spirit and the Word. Father, you're good to us. You're so good to us. Such a joy to gather with your people under the banner of the resurrected and reigning King. Under the banner of victory, not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work of Christ, our Savior and King. I pray, would you meet with us? Would you move powerfully, Holy Spirit? Would you anoint the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, in order to transform hearts and conform them to the image of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and for the eternal joy of all who listen? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter taught with unrivaled authority. He confounded religious leaders. He was full of compassion, healing the sick, delivering the demoniacs, and raising the dead. He demonstrated his sovereignty over nature, calming storms, walking on water, feeding 5,000 with two fish and five loaves. And yet his compassion and his authority was responded to from the religious leaders by crucifying him, by beating him beyond recognition and then nailing him to a Roman cross underneath a brutal execution, all because they uh, accused him of blaspheming for claiming to be the son of God. But on the third day, he got up from the dead. He was witnessed eating and drinking and being among hundreds of people. They witnessed this resurrection. He interacted with hundreds. He made clear he was the Messiah who came to seek and save the lost. After only three years of public ministry, three years, Jesus Christ sparked such a religious movement that his followers were immediately willing to be killed for their faith. And some 2,000 years later, even today, followers of Christ are, being willing, are willing to be killed for their faith. The question this morning, the most important question for you to ask and answer this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth walked out of the tomb on the third day? That he really was the Son of God come to save sinners like us from their sins? Brothers and sisters, our entire faith is built on this belief, depends on this belief. The Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, or if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if Christ didn't walk out of the grave on the third day, we have no hope that we'll walk out of the grave either. If Christ didn't live the life we should have lived and then die the death that we deserved for our sin, though he had none of his own, we can have no hope of having right relationship with God. We're still dead in our sins. We're still owed the just punishment of God. But he did resurrect. He did save us from our sins. And his resurrection does that which J.C. Ryle highlights the resurrection is the crowning proof that he's paid the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf. 
won the battle which you fought to deliver us from hell and is accepted as our surety and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Jesus Christ is the resurrected and reigning Lord. Therefore, we have nothing to be afraid of. The big idea this morning that I want to communicate to you is the resurrection of Jesus secures victory for his people. The resurrection of Christ secures victory for his people. In Christ's victory, all of his enemies lose and all of his followers win forever. If Christ really walked out of the tomb on the third day and your faith and trust is in him, that means you have a victory behind you that guarantees a victory in front of you. And that every single enemy that would come against you or come against Christ takes the L when they come up against Christ. So if you want a title this morning, don't be afraid, death couldn't hold him. Don't be afraid, death couldn't hold him. Let's look at his victory First, King Jesus is victorious over those who oppose him. King Jesus is victorious over those who oppose him. Look back at chapter 27, verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation. So we're talking about the Sabbath, the next day being the Sabbath. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So notice the religious leaders at this point go to Pilate, the governor, who's in charge, who has authority, again, who we watched had to oversee and give authority for the crucifixion to happen to begin with. And these leaders want to go and say, hey, this fraud, this imposter, told his disciples that he would rise on the third day. Now, probably what happened is Judas, when he betrayed Christ, was with them. And, and we have three different occurrences, even in our study in Matthew, where Jesus made clear to the disciples, I'll be delivered up, I'll be crucified, and on the third day I will rise. Judas probably heard that as before he betrayed Christ, and he probably gave that uh, information uh, to the authorities. And so they have this moment right now where they're thinking, oh no, on the third day, remember what he said, he's going to rise. So could it be that his disciples are going to try to go snatch him out of the grave to keep this fraud making it worse than the last one? It was already bad enough that he claimed to be the son of God. Now if, he, if they claim he really resurrected, that's a problem. Hey, can you make sure we can secure the tomb? They viewed Christ just as a religious teacher who made false claims. And they were concerned that he was gaining too much power and influence. So that's been their concern the whole time. Jesus was, again, he was seemingly a nobody from Nazareth. And yet he was teaching with authority that had never been seen before. He was demonstrating compassion, bringing the outsiders, the, the outcast, into his following. And the Jewish leaders were getting concerned and sort of like, wait a minute. If there's any shot, they fake his resurrection. We're in trouble. He'll keep having power. They're trying to get control. Now, they're not thinking, though, it doesn't seem that he actually could be who he said he was that perhaps he really was going to resurrect. They're just trying to grasp for control. See, it's often the case that those who do not want to acknowledge Jesus as a resurrected Lord have to come up with a way to keep him in the tomb. So let's just, in our cultural moment, even here, maybe what they're thinking is, just put Jesus in that good moral teacher box. Because if you can put him in the good moral teacher box, then we have no problem keeping him in the tomb. And so people even today will say this regularly, sure, he was a good moral religious leader like Muhammad or, or Buddha or Gandhi. But here's the foolishness of that claim. He claimed to be the exclusive way to right relationship with God. He made claims to be the truth, objectively. He is truth. 
He claimed to be one with the Father, making himself equal to God. He claimed to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7, which is the ultimate judge that every single person will have to stand before on Judgment Day. You can't make those kind of statements, them not be true, and you be a good moral teacher. You can't do that. You can't say, I'm God in the flesh, and be wrong on that one, and still be called a good teacher. This is the classic work from C.S. Lewis, the classic argument from Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So they're trying to put him in a box that his teaching and his activities and his actions would not let you put him in because they need him to stay in the grave because if he comes out of the grave, all of their worst fears would come true. But that, these religious leaders are not even having that conversation. Their goal is control. Their question is, how do we make sure Jesus stays in the tomb? As long as Jesus is in the grave, we can stay in control. And again, the same temptation is true today. As long as you can convince yourself that Jesus Christ's tomb or body is in some tomb somewhere in the Middle East, then you can go about your business uh, pretending like you're in control of your life or some fate or a destiny or randomness is. But if he walked out of the tomb on the third day, your illusion of control is exposed and you must do something with him. If there's not a body in that tomb in the Middle East, you've got to do something about his claims to be the son of God and the only way to have right relationship with God. If he's, must, if he's not there, you must do something with that. Now, I love when they come to Pilate saying this, their insecurity. I love, now, again, Pilate's a pagan, so he's not believing and trusting in Christ. He's, he's tried to act like he's innocent while he's put this man to death, but he's after politics and power. But they kind of say this to him, hey, we've got to make sure he stays in the tomb. And I love Pilate's response. Pilate's response is like, all right, bet it up. Make it as, sure, as secure as you can. Look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So Pilate's got kind of this sarcastic bewilderment. <laughs> you were terrified of this dude's influence when he was alive, so you begged me to beat him and crucify him. You watched his body beaten to a bloody pulp. You saw him crucified. You saw the suffering. You saw who we put in the tomb, and you're still worried about this dude. You're still insecure about him. You got a Jewish SWAT team? Go put them by the tomb. Make it as secure as you want to. I can't even get my pagan mind around the fact you'd be concerned about what's left over of that body. And Matthew tells us they did just that. They made it as secure as they could. Again, they sent the Jewish guard, the Jewish SWAT team, if you will. They did all they humanly could to make sure Jesus' body stayed in the tomb. They used good human strategy. They sealed the stone. And good human strength. They set a guard. But friends, do you see the deception, the self-deception of being in control? Creation cannot be in control of its creator. Human strategy and human strength do not impress, influence, or intimidate God in the least. They might be able to keep a dead body in the tomb, but they cannot keep the author of life from conquering death. We as created beings are under illusion if we think we can control the God who made us. 
This is a great error Peter confronted in his sermon in Acts chapter 3. Saying explicitly, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Peter's like, no, no, no. Y'all put to death the author of life. But we saw him get up. (laughs) Y'all killed him, but we saw God raise him. This is what Peter even preaches. And immediately we see the illusion exposed as we continue reading in chapter 28. This is just fantastic. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Okay, we're going to have fun with the guards in just a minute. But pay attention. The religious leaders broke their own Sabbath laws to attend to the tomb. So they're being hypocritical in trying to control God. So they've been, they've been like, they've, they've accused Christ of breaking the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath to try to keep Christ in the tomb. Mary and Mary, meanwhile, wait till the end of the Sabbath day to go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices as was custom. But when they get there, an angel was accompanied by an earthquake that rolled away uh, the great stone uh, to the tomb to let the woman look in. And did you notice this glorious and terrifying angel kind of post up on the stone? I love the spirit kind of highlights Yeah, he sat on the stone, rolled it away and sat down like, y'all check this out. <laughs> That's just an interesting detail. Like he, he sits down on the stone so they can look in and peer and see. But did you notice again the guards, the Jewish SWAT team? They went from confidently securing the tomb of a dead man to being as useful as dead men. <laughs> scared, literally scared to death. Like they're scared stiff. The strongest, the bravest, the scariest, suddenly the weakest. Because Christ is in control. Those who oppose Christ might believe the illusion that they can control him by keeping him in the tomb. The problem is, for them at least, they can't. Now this moment's a great foretaste of the great gathering of the, of the great white throne in the presence of the angels in the end. There is a resurrection, there is a judgment to come, this really is coming. And all of this is demonstrating something that Matthew's had on loop for us throughout this study that Jesus Christ is in control. He controls the winds and the waves. He can control the demons. He can control disease. He controlled death and raised death to life. He, can, he controls everything. His enemies are not in control, ever. The enemies of Christ, those who oppose Christ, are never in control of Christ, even when he's dead and in the tomb. He wasn't captured. He wasn't tried. He wasn't beaten and crucified until he said it was time. And when he said it's time to get up, Not even the SWAT team could keep him down. Now, this is true even today for us. Ultimately, no one who opposes Christ is in control. So we need not fear even Hamas. Even when there's great suffering and evil. Now, that doesn't mean we won't suffer. Doesn't mean they can't kill us. It just means they can't keep us dead. So the enemies of Christ can kill us. They can put us in the grave. They can't keep us there. Because Christ resurrected and assures he resurrected. So so Christ is victorious over all those who oppose him. Therefore, brother and sister this morning, do not be afraid. You need not be afraid of those who oppose Christ. For he resurrected from the grave. They are not in control. King Jesus is. The empty tomb proves his opponents to be an empty threat to his eternal victory for all his followers. So anytime we're threatened as the people of Christ, know they're empty threats. Again, they might kill us in this life, but we know the God who's going to raise us. 
We know to, to, to be absent from the bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord even now. And that the new heavens and new earth is coming when our bodies will be resurrected and joined with our spirits and will live in perfect life with no more tears and sorrows and sadness. He's victorious. The resurrection proves King Jesus victorious over those who oppose him. Not only that, King Jesus is victorious over death. Look at verse 5. King Jesus is victorious over death. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, just like he said in chapter 26, verse 32. They would raise from the dead, and then he'd meet them in Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So notice this same terrifying angel. So again, I don't know what you have when you think of angels in your mind. If you have some little fat baby uh, with like a cloth diaper playing a harp or something on the clouds, that's not what an angel's like in the Bible, okay? They're terrifying creatures, powerful, overwhelming. That's why the Jewish SWAT team is terrified, scared stiff, even in their presence, in this angel's presence. But he looks at the women. He says, do not be afraid. I know you're seeking the one crucified. He's not here. For he's risen. Go look where he laid. Go set your eyes on it. You need not be afraid. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, he's not there. He's still not there. <laughs> the angel comes to tell them, you do not need to be afraid. Why? Because he's not there. If he's there, you ought to be afraid. But if he's not there, you have nothing to be afraid of. If Christ resurrected, literally have nothing to be afraid of. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's greater. He's victorious over those who oppose him. But if he's not there, he's also victorious over death itself, our great enemy. Just like he told him back in chapter 20, verse 18. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Every bit of it happened. Just like he said. That's why you build your entire life on the word of God. You can take it to the bank. If he said it, he's going to do it. If he said, I'm getting up from death, death's going to take the L. He's going to get the W. That's just the way it works. This is what this angel says. Go look. Go see the place where he lay. He's no longer there. He's not laying the tomb because he said he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. He was in the tomb on Friday and the tomb on the Sabbath, Saturday. Now on the third day, he's risen just like he said. There's no need for those who seek Jesus to fear death because we're seeking the author of life. Christ himself is the Lord of creation and new creation. Think about the hymn in Colossians when the Apostle Paul is talking about Christology, the theology of Christ and what he's done, who he is and what he's done. Listen to this hymn, Colossians 1 verse 15. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean he's the first one created. It means he's the firstborn in rank. He's the inheritor of all creation. He's the supreme one, the, the, the king in charge. Why? Verse six, 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's also first, not just in creation, in his rank, but also in new creation. He's the first one to raise from the dead to show you he's going to raise all that belong here from the dead. So he's supreme in creation, he's supreme in new creation, so that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme or the king or the one everyone bows the knee to and confesses. He is Lord. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do it, Paul? Making peace by the blood of his cross. I told you last week, don't look away. Look at the cross. Because if you don't look away, you also don't have to be afraid. If you don't look away from the gore and blood and, and, and the ugliness of the cross and what it costs for God to save you from your sin, you'll keep seeing him. You'll see him raised from the grave and demonstrate and understand, now I have victory even over death. I need not even fear death itself. Christ is the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. When sin and death entered the world and the great promise was, no, there's a seed of the serpent that's coming and he's going to bruise the heel of one, but the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. And Christ, when he dies on the cross for our sins and pays the penalty for our sins, and then on the third day gets up, if you listen with the ears of faith, it's almost like you hear the serpent's skull crack under his feet when he walks out of the tomb. Yeah, his heels were bruised, but Satan's head was crushed. The women look in the empty tomb. They see the folded linen that was wrapped around Jesus' corpse, folded up nicely, even polite in that resurrection. Let me fold my clothes up real quick. Then one of the angels tells them, look at verse 7 again, go quickly, tell his disciples he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. You know you run into the God of the universe when you feel this combination of fear and great joy. Trembling in his presence on your own, but because of his grace, great joy like you've never known. Notice the angel commissions the women. Y'all come and see. And then go and tell. Come and see where he lay. See that he's not there. And then go tell his disciples. We'll look at the great commission, Lord willing, next Sunday. But we even see the, the, the angel teaching and demonstrating something. No, no. Come and see where he lay. See that he's not there. And then go tell people Christ is risen. And this is true. Whether you see by the eyes of faith or like these women saw physically. No, no, we invite people, come and see. This is the rhythm of the church. Every Sunday morning, come and see what he has done. Monday to Saturday, go and tell Christ is risen. Come and see what he's done. Go and tell Christ is risen. We see this from the angel even in the moment with these women. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Christ has conquered death. Which is why we say with the apostle Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection proves King Jesus is victorious over death. So they depart. The women depart and ran to tell the disciples. But a holy interruption ensues. Thirdly, King Jesus is victorious over sin. King Jesus is victorious over sin. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine this moment? I just saw the linen lying where he was lying. 
I know his body's not there. I watched him suffer and die a gruesome death that I wanted to look away from, but I didn't look away. Now I get to go tell the disciples that he's risen, and suddenly that voice, that voice, the shepherd king who first called them, greetings. Can you imagine when they heard that voice? What would you have done? You've done the same thing they did. Fell at his feet in worship. My shepherd king is alive. And they fall down, they bow, and they took hold of his feet. This is no delusion. Christ was no ghost. You don't cling to the feet of a ghost or a delusion. <laughs> they cling to his feet. Mary and Mary fall in reverent worship and wrap their hands on our resurrected Lord's feet. Can you imagine laying your head on the resurrected Lord's feet? And I would imagine... We know Doubting Thomas said, let me see the holes in your hands and feet. I imagine they lay down on his feet and their eyes are about eye level with his Achilles where there's a hole. Realizing, no, no, he really did do this for me and he really is alive. Clinging to their Savior. Can you imagine this moment? Especially if you're Mary Magdalene. Consider King Jesus' victory over Mary Magdalene's sin and the beauty of this moment. Mary is the one the angel said, do not be afraid. Christ is now going to say in just a moment, do not be afraid. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, this is one whom Christ had casted seven demons out of her. Very possible she was a prostitute. Yet she's the first to the tomb to find the king of kings was not there. She's a shameful sinner turned into the shameless servant of Christ, a nobody, an outcast, a wretched sinner saved by the grace and mercy of Christ. Now she's the first one to be able to hug his feet. The only way that's possible is if his mercy and forgiveness is greater than you and I can imagine. Why would he let Mary Magdalene be one of the first ones to lay eyes on him? Because he's saying something to us about his grace and mercy. Spurgeon says, out of her, Christ had cast seven devils. And now she acts as if into her he had sent seven angels. She had received so much grace that she was full of love to the Lord. And as I reminded you last week, just kind of an apologetic sidebar. In first century Jewish culture, women are considered second class citizens. Their testimony would not be accepted in a court of law. If all of this was to make up a religious movement, if none of this actually happened, the last thing you're going to do is let the first witnesses be a female, one, because you don't take that in court. Number two, let alone one who had demons cast out of her and had a reputation like this woman. The only reason this detail would be there is because it's true. And our God is gracious. King Jesus is victorious over Mary and Mary, both Marys, but Mary Magdalene's sin. But also consider King Jesus' victory over Peter and the disciples' sin of denial and abandonment. Remember what we've looked as we studied and walked through this Passion Week. Christ, or Peter promised, Jesus, I'll never abandon you. I'll die with you. Denied him three times. Chapter 26, verse 56, we see all of the disciples abandon him. They sinned big time. Friend, when is the last time you sinned big time and felt the shame and scorn of your rebellion? Like, I've messed up bad. I've messed up really bad. When you return to the Lord, what do you think his posture will be like when you've messed up bad? 
When you come face to face with your sin and the evil nature of your sin, and then you have to look face to face to Christ and bring your sin to Christ, what, what kind of look do you think is going to be on his face? Do you sometimes in those moments not feel like he's so ashamed of you and ready to be done with you? Like, are you really coming back to me again, having done this? Like, what do you picture his face to be? How does King Jesus demonstrate his victory over these disciples' big-time sin? Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. If your squad had abandoned you in your time of greatest need, denied you, if your main man had denied you three times, how would you speak of them? How would you speak to them upon your return? Jesus says, go tell my brothers I'm alive. Not my unfaithful followers. Not go tell those failures. Not go tell those hypocrites. Not go tell those dudes that are, I'm angry at right now. Go tell my brothers. Go tell my family. Go tell my brothers. I want to see them. Christ didn't suffer all that he suffered so that he could resurrect and then beat you up for your sin. Like that's not his, he didn't take the nails to his hands and feet so that he could raise from the dead after suffering and be angry at you. He took the nails to his hands and feet. He took the flogging. He was beat to a bloody pulp and he died so that he could raise with nothing but mercy to offer you. So that he could say, come here, my brother or sister. I know you're in sin. I know you've messed up big time. I paid for every last drop of it on Calvary. There's nothing left to be paid. There's no anger left. There's only grace. There's only mercy. Come here. Go tell my brothers. Our great high priest, King Jesus, is our elder brother. Brothers and sisters, the king of the universe calls us brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Satan took the L too. We just ain't got time to go through all of it. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helped, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Christ Jesus, our elder brother. The death of Christ is the death blow of Satan and death itself. Remember, death is in the world because of sin. If sin is dealt with, death can be reserved, uh, be reversed. And Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the people. He's the wrath absorber. He drank the Niagara cup of God's righteous wrath down to the very last drop. He drowned in the wrath of God so that he cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out to Telestai, it is finished. The sin debt is paid in full. His redemptive work is accomplished. He died, he laid in a tomb, but on the third day he walked out victoriously. He showed death who is boss. He showed sin who was boss. He showed Satan who was boss. When he walked out of the tomb, death, Satan, and our sin lost. God won. Therefore, his demeanor towards the repentant is that of a loving brother ready to reconcile because the debt has already been paid. You can think of Joseph in Genesis. Better than that, think about the story of the prodigal son. Christ is the opposite of the elder brother in the prodigal son. Remember the story, the younger brother takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it off in sinful living. Prostitutes, 
loses all of his money. Comes to his mind eating pig slop, thinking, my father's house, in my father's house, even the servants in that house live better than this. Maybe if I go back and say, Dad, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God, please just let me be your slave. Don't even treat me as a son, just let me be your slave. Then maybe he'll let me back and I at least can get a decent amount of food and at least have a good master. And then the father sees him, runs, embraces him, hugs him, kisses him, throws on the best robe with the family name on the back, throws a party because his lost son was found and he's been redeemed, he's been brought back to, to life. But the elder brother in that story is angry and frustrated. He's like, man, I, I always did everything I was supposed to do. You never threw a party for me. They never got my inheritance. And then the story kind of ends. And you're left hanging, wondering, did the elder brother, like, was he actually the problem? Christ Jesus is the opposite of that elder brother. It's like the younger brother when he was out in sin, partying and squandering the father's inheritance. The elder brother, Jesus, is like, I'm going to get you and I'm going to bring you back home. And the father's going to throw a party. We're going to together get the robe around you. We're going to uh, celebrate your return. Well, I'm going to bring you back because I'm this kind of elder brother. Christ's victory over our sin brings us into right relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Christ guards us from the fear of death because it has saved us from the penalty of our sins. You don't have to fear death when you know your sins have been paid in full. I get to be with God forever when I die. I need not fear death. To be absent from the body again is to be present with the Lord. So are you a brother or sister? Are you a repentant follower of Christ, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross to save you from your sins? Are you seeking Jesus? When his word disagrees with your life, do you submit to it? Do you confess your sin to Christ? Do you ask for his forgiveness and ask for his help to obey? If so, you have no reason to fear death, to live as Christ, to die as gain. The resurrection guards you against the deceptive fear of death because it sets you free from the penalty of your sin. King Jesus is victorious over death and sin. Lastly, King Jesus is victorious over lies. King Jesus is victorious over lies. We come back to the guard, so they got to figure out what they're going to do now. And we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to point out a few things. Back to human strategy, back to human strength, all in a vain attempt to control this resurrected Messiah. So they try to control Jesus when he was alive. They failed. They try to control him when he was dead in the tomb. They failed. Now they're trying to control him when they're resurrected. You can assume how that's going to work out for them. This time they're trying to stop uh, uh, the spread about Christ's resurrection. So they're going to try to stop that by telling a lie about the resurrection. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. About the angel and the stone and Mary, Mary coming, Christ not being there. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said... Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So a sufficient sum of money, enough to pay Pilate off. Now you need to understand a guard in this scenario, if you failed in this task, that punishment that was uh, worthy for failing was execution. So if you had to guard a tomb and then you failed and the body got stolen, you were executed. That was the normal law. But they know Pilate, again, he's a politician, he loves money. And so they're like, look, we're going to give you enough money and just tell Pilate it was nighttime, y'all was tired, you closed your eyes, you fell asleep, and the disciples must have come and taken his body while you were asleep. And hopefully you pay him off enough, he won't kill you. Think about this even. They bought Jesus' betrayal for a equivalent of about $7,500. Now they're paying a large sum of money to keep his resurrection quiet. It's worth just noting you should be aware of the wicked temptations money can bring. 
Many of you think if you had more money, then all your problems are going to go away. If you had more money, maybe you could just be more creative in your sin. Don't look to money. Look to Christ. But that's, again, just a sidebar. Look at verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So at the time of Matthew's writing, some 20 or 30 years later, they, they still haven't been able to prove or find Jesus' body. So they spread this lie to cover up Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is not the only lie. I want to give you a few more or at least other explanations that people have come up with to explain this Jesus and what was said about his resurrection. Because to doubt Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is to place trust in some other narrative or some other explanation, some other story. So I just want to run through your options for you this morning. You could agree or believe with the Muslims who argue that Jesus, it wasn't Jesus who died on the cross instead of a dude, uh, it was a dude who looked like him. So it wasn't Christ himself, but someone who looked very similar to him. Muhammad began teaching this as recorded in the Quran some 600 years after it happened. Are you, are you fine with a, a theory that came up 600 years later? Or you may believe that Jesus didn't really die. Some people say, well, he didn't really die. He was just injured really bad. Now, most scholars, even those who are not Christians, aren't even religious, admit we have historical proof of Christ's resurrection. And anyone who knows anything about Roman crucifixion and the process Christ went through knows it's utterly absurd to say he only passed out rather than dying on the cross. And then somehow woke up in the tomb as his body was destroyed, woke up in the tomb, somehow moved this massive stone not one man could actually move, overthrew the Jewish SWAT team and got out. Again, it makes no sense, but it's another option for you to believe. Thirdly, maybe you believe the wrong tomb theory. Some have tried to say the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They found an empty tomb because it was the wrong one. It wasn't Joseph of Arimathea's. They made a mistake. Christ's body wasn't there because it was the wrong tomb. And then they mistakenly told the story that he had resurrected because Christ was in a different tomb. But again, if you want to believe that one, I would just kind of say, but don't you think the Jewish people who were incredibly concerned that this story wouldn't keep spreading would say, hey, you morons, that's the wrong tomb. We're right here at the right tomb. The guard who was trying to make sure this story didn't get spread, don't you think they would say, no, 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 his body's right here. You found the wrong tomb. Don't you think they would have squashed that one pretty easily? Again, that's maybe an option for you. Or do you think the disciples were delusional? Some have argued that all 500 plus witnesses had the same delusion. That Peter was then willing to be crucified upside down. Plenty of the other disciples were willing to be killed. They all had the same delusion. But again, don't you think the Jewish leaders would say, stop, it's all a delusion. We have the body. He's right here. Or maybe you believe the lie the Jewish leaders spread that the disciples, you know, the fishermen from Galilee, took over the Jewish SWAT team and stole the body. <laughs> Justin Martyr lived between 100 and 165 AD, said uh, these kind of stories were still being circulated even in his life. So those who feel skeptical about the resurrection of Christ, I just want to ask you, which one of these do you not feel skeptical about? Which one of these options, which one of these explanations for Christ and his resurrection satisfies your skepticism? To reject the story of Christ and resurrection of Christ is to place your faith in something else. Do you really trust your doubts or are they trustworthy? Or are you persuaded even today that the gospel of Christ is true? Consider the written testimony of Scripture. If someone was going to invent a Messiah story, they wouldn't write the story with God being born to a poor couple in an inn. They wouldn't let the hero of the story get totally overlooked by his very own people. Surely a made-up story wouldn't include a ragtag group of fishermen and disciples and sinners, outsiders, outcasts of society. 
Surely if someone was making this up, they wouldn't send the king of the universe to go through the gauntlet of suffering that Christ did and then die the gruesome death, the worst kind of death, on Calvary's cross. And surely if they were even were going to do all that, they wouldn't take first century Jewish culture and say, hey, let's, make, let's insert women as the first one to witness that and be the witness of this resurrection. And surely if they did that, they wouldn't use a former prostitute as one of those witnesses. Unless, again, it was all true. N.T. Wright says the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. Nobody would have invented it. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. This is not the kind of story humans would make up. Only the kind of story a gracious God would accomplish. Bishop Ryle again says it'd be impossible to prove anything in the world if we refuse to believe Jesus rose again. You want more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? What about this? If you can testify that spiritually you were once dead, but you're now alive, that you were once blind, but now you see, and that you believe with all that you are, that Jesus Christ lived for you, died for you, and rose from the grave. Do me a favor and just raise your hand right now. A couple thousand years later, you can let your hands down. A couple thousand years later in Greensboro, just a Jewish carpenter, three years of ministry. Some estimate as many as a third of the world's population are followers of Christ. You know why? Because the tomb's empty and the throne is occupied. Resurrection of Christ secures victory for all of his people. In Christ's victory, all of his enemies lose. All of his followers win forever. The resurrection of Christ is our victory. King Jesus is victorious over those who oppose him, over death, over sin, and over lives. That's why our baptism, and even Lord willing, the baptisms we'll see next week and even next month, testify of Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Death couldn't hold him. Let's close in prayer.